there were a couple of fellows that uh, hopped on the airplane before the co-pilot was there and stuck a gun to Jim's head and said, you are taking me to Cuba this afternoon. And Jim went, well, basically F you. And uh, that was the kind of guy that Jim was. And, uh, and so they, uh, they actually shot him through the legs, uh, with the leg and drug him out of the cockpit and uh, threw him out on the tarmac. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 53 of On The Step With That Mallard Guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. On The Step is all about float planes and flying boats. If you want to get in contact with me, maybe suggest a guest, tell me how much you're loving the show, or just say a general hello from wherever you are around the world, drop me a line on my email, thatmallardguy at hotmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram and send me a message at thatmallardguy. Just quickly, I am so excited about this episode, folks. I can't even wait until the introduction to tell you that. But I will refrain from starting the show because I have an exciting achievement to share with you all. On the step, racked up over 50,000 downloads last week. That is really incredible to think that you all out there have been so dedicated to the show. It really means a lot to me to be able to get these incredible stories out there bringing our small niche industry together through audio. So thank you, everyone. Now, I know a lot of you are return listeners. Most of you haven't missed a single episode. So I now challenge you to share the show to someone who hasn't heard it yet. Maybe it's sharing it with your colleague, sharing it with someone on the docks, or sharing it with your mum. I know she'll love the show. There is the challenge for all of you regular listeners get out there and share 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 now we've also had a couple more five-star written reviews come in via apple Podcasts this last week which brings us to 96 only four more from that goal of 100 five-star written reviews come on guys who hasn't done one yet put your hand up i see you out there yes that's you get us over the line come on here is one from timothy garner 1990 with a title of Fantastic Podcast with some incredible people. And young Timothy said, Every episode gives an incredible insight into the variety of float and seaplane flying, the discussions of different weather, aircraft and predicaments with a wide range of experiences from some of the best to ever do it keeps me coming back. Five stars. And then he's gone to put five star emojis in there. Thanks, Timmy boy, for the great review, buddy. Now, On The Step is proudly brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. I can't stress enough how important it is to become a member to help out the association that looks after our industry. Now, the link is in the show notes to join up at a discounted rate for On The Step fans, so go check it out and join today. Okay, folks, for the intro of this episode's guest, Arthur Campbell, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I was sent an article written about senior captain Campbell doing a day's work flying for his company Chalks Ocean Airways some time ago. Now the article was written by Roland Stittler and it was published in the Orlando Sentinel newspaper on October 23rd, 1988. It is an incredible article talking about the experience of flying on a Chalks Mallard and also dives into the history of the company and shares some great stories about its founder, Arthur Pappy Chalk. Now I'm going to read some of the highlights of the article. Not all of it, it's quite long, 
but a link to the full article is in the show notes for those of you who want a bit of homework. It's a really good read. For a Mallard pilot, Chalks is somewhat of a holy grail company. Alongside Antilles airboats or the Virgin Island seaplane shuttle, or maybe even Paspali Aviation. It was an absolute pleasure to interview and talk with an ex-Chalks pilot, and Arthur Campbell doesn't disappoint. It's time, folks, to get on the step. He smiles and gazes out the open cockpit window at the Aqua Ocean, 1,500 feet below. This is where the challenge is, says Arthur Campbell, whose previous job was flying a crop duster. The way I look at it, is that this is the only real flying left in commercial aviation. The 39-year-old Grumman Mallard seaplane Campbell flies daily is clearly real in the way that Campbell means. It's four years older than its pilot. There's no fancy pants colour radar to tell him which clouds harbour a storm cell. There's no pansy computerised device to automatically guide him into the airport. What good would it do? There's no airport where we're landing anyway, just the ocean. Campbell begins and ends each workday at Fort Lauderdale International Airport. He flies for Chalks International Airlines, the oldest continuously operating airline in the United States and the only scheduled air service in the US that still operates seaplanes. Chalks is a bona fide South Florida legend up there with Henry Flagler's Railroad. For pilots like Campbell, a nine-year veteran of Chalks, flying seaplanes is more than a job. It's the chance to be one of the last members of a great aviation fraternity. Chalk's fleet of four 17-passenger-seat Grumman Mallards spend their nights on a runway in Fort Lauderdale and their days providing a handful of small bohemian keys with their principal link to the modern world. To the overwhelming majority of the 125,000 passengers Chalk's carries annually, Flying one of the majestic old mallards is not so much a romantic adventure as it is a simple convenience. Want to fly from Bimini to Miami or Nassau? Want to go from Fort Lauderdale or Miami to casino-laden Paradise Island near Nassau? Chalks is, quite literally, the only way to fly. What makes Chalks so appealing to a basic Walter Mitty-style adventurer like me is that one can experience all this with a minimal commitment. All you have to do is buy a ticket, roughly 100 round trip to almost anywhere they fly, and then fly off in a plane that looks like it might be setting down next in Pago Pago. Your first adventure on Chalks is simply getting into the air. The flights out of Miami leave from Watson Island, a small man-made landmass that sits directly across the ship channel from the terminal where all the cruise ships embark. The runway for the seaplanes is government cut, which is the ship channel itself. That means the pilot must be adroit at dodging obstacles like the SS Skyward, a cruise ship that stands 14 storeys from the waterline and weighs about as much as the Florida Mall. The cruise ships themselves don't constitute much of a danger. They move very slowly and predictably, but a drunk in a criss craft can cause incredible problems when the Mallard is clipping along its takeoff run with both turboprops cranked to the max. Remarkably, Chalks is the proud holder of an incredible safety record, 69 years of operation with not one fatality. The Mellard, like its namesake, usually does a lot of swimming before it finally lumbers into the air. Sit on the rear of the plane on takeoff and you wonder why they didn't name it the Nautilus. Water rushes over the windows until they are completely covered. 
The whole process seems incredibly lazy. A commercial airliner is blasting away at around 200 miles an hour when it leaps off the concrete into the sky. A mallard doesn't do any leaping. It leaves the water at about 60 miles an hour and then just seems to levitate. Slowly it floats into the air. After what seems like an eternity, it has reached treetop level. No more than 10 minutes after we glide out of downtown Miami, Bimini is in sight in front of us. I breathe easier as the pilot starts to circle Bimini in preparation for landing. The circling serves a double purpose, giving the passengers a travel poster view of this sub-tropical island and letting boaters in Bimini Harbour know we're coming. That gives them a chance to dodge when the plane comes down. In a matter of minutes, the plane is drifting down to treetop level, skimming just over the mast of a sailboat in the harbour and then floating along just above the water. I glance into the cockpit and notice a gauge that says our airspeed is about 50 miles an hour. We just seem to hang there in the air for a moment as the docks and the boats in the harbour flash by in a blur. Then it happens. The moment. Kawoosh! The plane hits the water and skips across the surface like a flat stone that's been tossed by a strong-armed schoolboy. We are riding a strange aerodynamic, hydrodynamic force that gives you the sensation of water skiing without a ski boat. It's a sensation that by itself makes the ride worthwhile. Chalk's employees say some passengers book flights simply to experience the thrill of the splashdown. After landing, the plane becomes a boat. Using the two props to steer, the pilots sail to the boat ramp slash airport that is our port of entry into the Bahamas. He drives the plane up the boat ramp right across the main street of Alistown, Bimini and parks it by what looks like an old abandoned gas station. It is the airport terminal. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A lot. Okay, welcome to On The Step, all the way from Michigan in the United States, Mr. Arthur Campbell. How are you going, Arthur? All right, Daniel. Good talking to you. Awesome, mate. I'm so excited about uh, having this conversation to you, mate, um, just so much so that I've been dreaming about this conversation all night w- until I wake up and get to speak to you. This is something that um, you and I have been trying to work on for a while, you know, getting together and, and talking all about um, your career in the seaplane flying boat industry. Um, obviously, you're the first person I've finally got on who um, at one stage worked at Chalks. So I'm super excited to hear all about what it was like to be a Chalks pilot back in the day. But mate, let's jump back at the start of your career and let's talk about how you got into aviation and was seaplane something that was on the radar straight away? Sure. I uh, was... Uh looking for a sort of a career and uh, had an opportunity uh, to get a few uh, to get my licenses I decided I wanted to be a pilot and went to Embry-Riddle as long as I could uh, sort of stand the, uh, the the air science curriculum and then I got bored with that and just uh, just got my ratings um, and uh, I was sort of a, a, a an air, air aircraft ski bum I decided that uh, wasn't the schooling part wasn't for me I was just going to go out on my own and and uh, find what I could find in the real world. So uh, one of the first uh, real jobs I had was uh, working for a spray operation. And uh, I was uh, 
all set up to fly the uh, 450 Stearman and the B model AGCAT. Worked a summer for them, and the job never really sort of panned out. So uh, I was living in Florida at the time and uh, came back home. And a friend of mine I met, his father had this, uh, excuse me, uh, this friend of mine that lived next door uh, eventually, uh, was a, a captain for a private entity uh, had a Grumman goose and uh, looking for a co-pilot I had just the, I had the ratings and uh, didn't have a seaplane rating so uh, got on flying the uh, flying the uh, Grumman goose on a, on a corporate basis for this uh, oh, wow. uh, for this very wealthy uh, person I don't know if I should divulge who that was but anyhow uh, <laughs> this man had a uh, had an island down in the Bahamas and uh, was based we were based in Fort Pierce Florida and it was a Grumman goose. It was a, a retractable float goose, a wonderful, very restored, beautiful flying airplane. But the catch of the thing was the this pilot friend who have, turned out to be a next door neighbor. Uh, he was probably up in his fifties at the time. Turned out to be a fellow named Jim Cawthron or James Cawthron, and James Cawthron had worked for Chalks through the years and uh, had been become quite a, a great reputation as a wonderful seaplane pilot. This I didn't know at the time, but uh, he was sort of my mentor. So I became uh, became his co-pilot and flew in the goose and we flew groceries and that sort of thing in support of, uh, uh, of the island down that this man owned and um, interesting flying. And uh, But I, what I didn't know was I was being taught uh, by probably one of the finest seaplane pilots in the world. Uh, yeah, right. And uh, like I said, he had worked for Chalks and then gotten this job. And then uh, I uh, – that sort of ran its course. That's a whole whole different story. But th- then decided to move on and, and for different reasons. But uh, found out about Chalks down in Miami and had a friend that lived down there at the time and, and um, went down and uh, kind of kicked around. And word got out that uh, – well, I talked to the chief pilot at the time. And word got out that I had worked for – with Jim and uh, they were immediately interested in me because I'd had this probably 500 hours of goose time at that time and in the right seat and uh, pretty much hired me on the spot. And that was sort of beginning and that was in January of 1980. So I guess with that goose work, you, you're almost doing some sort of private competition with chalks in a way, but you didn't really know about it. Was that right? Right. Well, exactly. There was no, there was no competition with chalks. It was just a private corporate yeah, deal. It was owned by this 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 wealthy person that had this island. Yeah, but that's how I kind of got the new shot. No shocks. We had actually flown into Paradise Island, which is on Nassau, next to at Nassau, and utilized Chalk's ramp uh, and terminal one afternoon. And there were these other mallards on the uh, on the ramp, and uh, that's kind of how I got to know shocks. And that's that's sort of how I went went back uh, uh, after that uh, that that Grumman Goose job ended. It's interesting you say that because, like, I feel something like Chalks back, you know, especially now, would have been one of the real highlights out of Miami there and out of Florida and maybe seaplane flying around the world. Um, And here you are in a goose flying pretty much the same route almost and and Mm. going to the same areas but kind of only becoming aware of them, you know, when you're on the ramp and seeing these mallards. Like, was that... 
something that was common back in the day then that you kind of wouldn't know about other operators until you kind of actually saw them on the ramp, unlike with these days with social media and everything? Well, I think it was kind of a regional thing. And really, Chalks wasn't, didn't have the, the legendary status that it does now. Back in the day, it was just a, just a little regional carrier that happened to fly seaplanes out of downtown Miami and, and beyond the Bimini and Nassau at the time. And, and um, so it really didn't have that that legendary status that it has now. And I just happened to see another seaplane on the ramp and it turned out to be chalks ramp. And, and I thought to myself, well, you know, that's something sort of to put back in the back of my head. And then after that season was over with the, with the Grum and goose and I decided to move on. That was one of the reasons I moved down to Miami or went down and talked to those people. And that's, that's how sort of how I got the job. Yeah. Right. That's super interesting. Yeah. One thing I picked up on there, you know, we probably talk about this more as well when you talk about, going into chalks but ramping the goose you know what was it like ramping a, a tailwheel aircraft because I, I know I've, I've only ramped the mallard a couple of times on a very flat ramp in uh, australia here but um done a lot of ramping on some float planes amphibious float planes but what was it like ramping the goose being a tailwheel was was there a few times there where you uh, maybe you know feel like the plane was going to go over the the nose a little bit Oh, not at all, really, because it, the way the, the the center of gravity was situated on the aircraft, there was never a problem with that. Um, it was it, more of a differential power. There are two techniques that that um, two different ways to ramp ramp a, an aircraft, whether it's tailwheel or, or a nose wheel. And my way was I was I was raised on a farm and I was taught to take care of, of equipment. And a lot of folks just sort of go roaring up a ramp. The way I used to do it, or would, would be just sort of slowly approach the ramp if, if the wind and tide were right, and just sort of sort of sort of touch touch the the the, the, the nose wheel or the mains, in that goose in the, in that case the goose, and and just throttle up. Uh, I just had a real problem with going going bashing up a ramp. So with with the with the goose, it was more more differential power uh, as as say with the mallard. Um, uh, so it was, it was pretty much differential power, but then you, you, you apply your power, uh, evenly. Um, so yeah. you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have, have any kind of a differential situation there going up the ramp. So, and, and I guess that would, would that be to do with ground looping later on once you get out of the water? Is that right? Or yeah, they actually, um, just getting up out of the water was no ground looping was no problem because you're on the brakes by that time and, and, yeah. uh, differential power. Uh, but it, once you're up, uh, out of the water, sort of stay away from the differential power until you really need to turn because you don't, you don't want to spin the airplane. You don't want to ground loop it, but so it's, it's brakes and it's just, just taking your time. My philosophy on it was just, you just have to take your time. It's just like, uh, like anything is, or be, uh, docking a boat if you do it slowly and take your time uh it's it's going to work out you touched on before about the fact that chalks was just this little small commuter category uh commuter carrier sorry that um that flew off the water wasn't really a big thing what was your impression when you actually first got the job and started actually flying at chalks what was your first memories of of the company First memories of the company was just getting acclimated into the Mallard uh, because it was the uh, uh, it was a thirteen forty. It was a regular piston Mallard we called it, and uh, getting acclimated from a tailwheel to a to a nosewheel aircraft, and obviously quite a bit larger. 
just a different environment. Uh, you're dealing with um, you're going from a corporate situation into a into an airline, which I'd never never done before, and there are all sorts of different dynamics there as far as uh, passengers and ticket ticket agents and crew and maintenance and so that was a whole new new learning curve but what i brought with me was was just good basic basic knowledge about four or five hundred hours of of goose time and that that surely helped a lot versus someone that would come along a a green co-pilot that didn't have any any seaplane experience at all other than having to gone out and uh, gotten gotten a multi-seaplane rating and, and come on the chalks because if we happen to need uh need pilots at the time it was first come first serve but that was one of the reasons i think that that i was picked up so quickly because of this this relationship with uh, with jim cawthron yeah right because he had he, he had such a he had such a stellar reputation he was the one by the way that was uh, hijacked back in the 70s when the hijacking really first started happening down to cuba uh, All right. there's a whole new story there's a whole different story about that but uh, that may be for another time Always got time to hear good stories about hijackings, mate. You can uh, tell some oh, sure. announce if you like. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that was sort of an interesting thing. This is uh, for a second hand, but you can look it up. He was uh, he was in the Mallard, and he, Jim was a sort of an old school kind of a guy, really nice, fair guy, uh, sort of a negative motivation sort of a fellow. I mean, it, if he did something wrong in the cockpit, you heard about it right away. Uh, but he <laughs> uh, was getting ready to take a flight to. Uh, probably Bimini or Nassau or something like that. I had a brand new co-pilot and uh, co-pilot used to board the aircraft uh, with the passengers and the roll up ramp in the back. And Jim was sitting up front and uh, just waiting for the, for the passengers to load up and the co-pilot to do his little talk and tell him where the fire extinguishers and the life preservers were, and then walk out of the cockpit and they blast off. Well, there were a couple of fellows that uh, hopped on the airplane before the co-pilot was there and, stuck a gun to Jim's head and said, you are taking me to Cuba this afternoon. And Jim went, well, basically F you. And uh, that was the kind of guy that Jim was. <laughs> and, uh, and so they, uh, they actually shot him through the legs. Uh, oh, the leg And drug him out of the cockpit and uh, threw him out on the tarmac. But the for some reason, the, uh, the air stairs were not up to the airplane. So they threw him out of the back door. Out on the out on the tarmac, and the way the the Mallard was situated that that particular day, the way the ramp was, because I parked in this place hundreds of times, the the nose would pitch down and the tail would be up, so he had that much further to hit the ground, and um, so he was pretty hurt, and uh, so the only person left to to fly the flight because these guys had hijacked the airplane, they hadn't taken off yet, was the co-pilot, and the co-pilot. Uh, happened to be his first day on the job. He had just gotten his uh, oh dear his, his seaplane rating, and um, <laughs> and uh, they, they 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 made this poor guy hop into this mallard and fly him down, fly him down, and they made it all the way down to uh, down to Havana. And uh, it's quite a story. It's worth it's worth a Google and uh, and and having a look at. I probably missed a few things, but uh, that was the type of guy that Jim was. He was. Uh, yeah, right. I, I feel very fortunate. I'm and happy to call him my mentor. He, he passed away three years ago at like yeah, 97 right or something like that. Yeah. Wow. You know, touching on that co-pilot, I don't know whether he would be, you know, really happy about that or uh, disappointed. I mean, your first day on the job, you get an international charter to Cuba. That's, um, you know, by yourself when you're employed as an FO. Like, 
You know, that's stepping up in the game pretty quickly, isn't it? Like, yeah, with, especially with a gun pointed at your head. <laughs> exactly. Sounds like he did pretty well. He might have got a captain rating straight away, the poor guy. Well, he might have. Yeah. He might have. Uh, that, you know, talk about pressure. And, uh, well, we can talk about pressure. There are all sorts of different aspects associated with uh, flying this particular airplane uh, back and forth to the Bahamas back in the day. Yeah. As far as navigation and all that. Exactly, yeah. Before we touch on that, mate, uh, there was something you talked about before, was that airline-style aspect of this job, right? You know, I think a lot of us who fly seaplanes, we, we love the fact that we don't have to fly with our shoes on, for example. We love the fact that we can, you know, rock up in casual clothes and, and mm-hmm. a lot of the time, you know, if we're out bush flying, we're in these remote areas. Um, was this still one of those jobs that, you know, those those kind of airline mentality uh, pilots that were going to fly a 777 or, you know, 747, were they just looking at this as like, that's my still my stepping stone to get to that airline? Or was this in its own right a an airline that was the dream job for some of those real true hardcore seaplane pilots? Absolutely. It was uh, uh, certainly uh, a stepping stone. I would say 80 to 90% of the of the co-pilots and when i was there for 18 and a half 19 years um uh at 80 or 90 percent of those guys came through were on their way up and uh my situation was i was just happy to get the job i just married and and was living in my hometown uh, just up the road uh and uh, was enjoying the work and by that time i was kind of got in a position of senior captain. I never wanted to be chief pilot. I didn't want that that stress. I was just enjoy flying the work, flying the aircraft and doing the work. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a stepping stone for me. I tried, but I, I just I just didn't have my heart in it. I didn't want to leave home and I had a new son on the way and all that. So uh, that's that. Uh, but yeah, there were, there were dozens, Daniel, there were dozens of co-pilots that came through that, uh, uh, that sat in my right seat uh, that moved on and, uh, and are either retired or still doing it uh, with yeah. with the with the airlines. And of course, the nine eleven thing devastated the industry. But uh, a lot of those guys were out of work. But yeah. that's another story. Yeah, but it's just so interesting, isn't it? Now looking back at this company and 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 knowing what the Ballard is like these days and how rare they are, and you know us being now the only operators in the world commercially of the of the Ballard and really only flying it. Um, what it what it should be like it was back then um the fact that people were using this as just a way to get up to the airlines it's just incredible to think like that and, and i mean even at chalks like you said you joined in the 80s you know we're talking about a 40 year old aircraft at this stage so and you know there was only 59 mallards ever built so i'm sure that the mallard was still an aircraft that was um pretty unique at the time it, it was uh you know, there was Antilles Airboats down in uh, in the Virgin Islands that was sort of doing the same thing. That was a Charlie Blair operation. Um, yeah. And then Jim Jim Cawthron, actually, Jim helped, helped uh, Charlie start that airline down there. But it was really nothing more than just, just a seaplane operator, a regional carrier back in the day. It just didn't have that, that history that, that it did. They did. They One of the things that they touted was the fact that it was the world's safest airline. Started in 1919, and uh, first international, oldest international operating airline in the world, and and the safest, uh, having not had a fatal accident ever at that at that point. Uh, 
That's some pretty crazy stats, really, eh? Yeah. Yep. At the time, it really was, and that was really that was a remarkable thing about it at the time. Not not the not the legendary status that it is that it that it has today. So, mate, take us back. You, you just got the job flying these aircraft. Tell us about what it was like as a pilot back in the day there, um, especially at the start of your career and how you progressed flying at, at Chalks. What was the training like? Um, what was it like when you started line flying as a co-pilot on the Mallard? Tell us the whole shebang. Well, I think uh, it was a, obviously a small operation. There were 30 pilots at the time, I think, co-pilots and captains. And, of course, there was no albatross on the scene, so there were no flight attendants or any of that. But anything like that but the, the the classes were generally depending on how many how many people they needed were just one or two guys and we'd sit around with uh go through the books and do what we had to do and then they had a they had an faa examiner on on staff that would give the that would give the types and um and uh, and then the way you went and it started out basically when you started at chalks the way the way they they sort of went through the process was uh, you start out loading bags and fueling airplanes. And then when there was a, when there was a, a slot open, then you went to ground school, which was, was just a few days, took the test and got in the right seat. And that's where, that's where it all began. Uh, it, it, it was one of those things where it was pretty much o, uh, on the job training, OJT. Uh, it's, you, you learn from the right seat and, um, that's sort of how you did it. And back in those days, it was real flying. It was, it was, uh, there was no nav, there were nav aids, of course, uh, VOR in, uh, in Miami, and there was no VOR in Bimini, but there was MDB. Nassau had a VOR, but we flew so low uh, that we really, you know, those things, uh, except for the MDB or ADF in the aircraft. Yeah. Yep. And if there was weather, we were down low, so there was a lot of dead reckoning involved because it's, if there's thunderstorms around, you couldn't rely on the ADF, so you just sort of kind of pick your way around the stuff. We did a lot of scud running, as we used to call it back in the day, yeah. but it was hot, you know. The, it was in Miami in the summertime, and uh, is hot flying, and of course there were the fan. Even fans came later. They had a fan in the in the cockpit, but no fans in the back, and it was just it was excruciatingly hot. Um, <laughs> And uh, of course, the airplanes were uh, airplanes were, were kept in great shape, considering the fact the the usage on them. And yes, the hulls leaked a little bit, uh, and so that was part of the copilot's job was to get underneath and spin out the uh, the plugs and drain the aircraft before the next flight. And, and wow, uh, so you do that on a on a, a sector basis almost? Oh, between every flight, absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Oh, and. Yeah, depending on the aircraft too. Depending on the airplane, um, each airplane got a reputation as being like, "Oh boy, great! I have, I have uh, November such and such airplane today, and boy, I want to be underneath that airplane spinning out drain plugs all day long." Um, yeah, right. <laughs> and you know, it's, uh, but uh, for the most part, they were they were pretty well kept. And, and uh, I want to touch on that a little bit because um, you know we. You know, everyone who comes and has a look at our mallards in in Darwin here in Australia, um, they look at them and go, "Geez, they're really well kept." And oh, they're beautiful. The f- yeah, and look, the, the flying we do, people don't really realise, but we're generally flying a couple of hours one way off the runway, landing on generally reasonably protected water. Sometimes it can be quite rough out there. We have had days where, you know, we get water that's coming over the top of the, over the nose and over the windshield. Um, 
and that can be quite rough. It's not generally like that, but we can go through some pretty rough water. But then we we're kind of flying two hours back, and and you know maybe we, we might only do that once a week with that one airplane. So, but these airplanes are put through every water. To, everything's basically water to water, isn't it? So, you're using ramps for the wheels, but everything's water to water, and it's and it's all really rough water as well. Not necessarily, not all the time. No, it, it depends. Um, for instance, in Miami Harbor, in, in downtown Miami, the government cut. We had like 15,000 feet of usable or at least usable runway out there. And, and uh, midweek, uh, if, of course, this is where the cruise ship's based or docked downtown. Um, and then you had the, the fuel tugboats that would come up and, uh, and they would throw about a four or five foot wake behind each one of those. So you had to consider that. Yeah. But the water conditions varied. Uh, some days it would be just slick calm and you'd have to make a, a you know, uh, just one of those beautiful landings that you've, you've, you've seldom get. But then there were the days when the wind and the tide was wrong and there was a tugboat had come through or uh, that you had to pick. And oh, especially the weekends in Miami, downtown Miami, because you had everybody and his brother out there. And back in those days, they had the go fast boats, the cigarettes and the magnums and, uh, and of course, we they'd probably been having a little something to drink too, and and uh, see the old seaplane trying to taxi down in, in the water and suck up the gear and take off, and it's like, well, let's go ahead and see if we can't catch a little race with this uh, with this seaplane. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. so you had you had that, but it varied. It really did vary. And then, for instance, also too in Paradise Island, there were there was a big bridge that we had a taxi underneath and to get out and course when the tide's running the wrong way and and the wind's blowing a certain way then you get you know, you get it's rough I mean, it's just you it was one of those things that it, it there was there were so many factors that were inve- that were involved with flying this airplane in those conditions all even though early on we went just with miami bimini and nassau and cat key they varied so so dramatically wind tide was a huge factor uh, uh tra- boat traffic um, all of those things played into it, and never, never, ever was any day or any landing the same. Um, and we was basically early on; uh, it was strictly a water-to-water operation. The first time we actually started doing land landings, they decided to redo the the, the ramp in Miami on Watson Island. That was the main seaplane base; still is there. So we had to move operations to Opelika, which is an air, airport nearby, just above Miami. And uh, so we started doing land landings for the first time, uh, and that was a, a whole new new thing to get get used to, uh, <laughs> and operating in a in a tower environment, you know. And there were we never uh, water to water operation. There were no no you know no control towers, and we we flew out of the old TCA out of Miami, and and. and of course, the controllers, Miami Airport's right behind the seaplane base, and, and uh, we'd take off, and they, the controller automatically knew it was chalks climbing out, and we'd activate a flight plan, and that would that would be about it. But um, everything was different back in the – I mean, every – it was just completely evolving, changing situation with every landing. Uh, yeah, it's one of the great things about seaplane flying, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, and you had to you had to make things happen for yourself. For instance, um, in in downtown Miami, uh, 
in the government cut, there were days on the weekends when there was so much wake and, and there's so many boats out there and you kind of had to pick and choose and slow the airplane down and just kind of to keep it just above a stall before you touch down and just kind of ride along and, and, and find a place to, to drop the airplane. And this is, of course, in a piston mallard and um, where, where you make a safe landing or without a you know, for porpoising and doing all that business. And, and uh, But that all changed with with, with, the, uh, with the turbine, with the PT-6. That Then we could uh, apply reverse and, and do all, all the things that go along with that. But... Uh, we would do a little, we call it a slip approach in Miami and come over what's called Bicentennial Park. And they had a, they had a little slip that's probably three or 400 feet wide by about 700 feet long. And it was just a, just a little gap. And we drop in over the park and drop in this little slip and get the airplane down. So of course, as soon as we touched down, we dropped, we dumped the flaps and the airplane would settle in the water and. Yep. And hopefully get the thing stopped before we got out into the turning basin where all the where all the, the chop and the, the rough water was and all the boats, that sort of thing. Yeah, weekends were interesting. Weekends yeah. were pretty crazy. It would have been awesome to kind of have this around these days with, with the way social media and, and everyone's got a camera and you know, to be able to have all this footage of what, what you guys did back in the day would have been pretty amazing. Um it's so interesting how you said there that, you know, basically this whole operation was um just water to water and you only use the wheels for ramping um yeah tell us about what it was like when you were there starting off on the on the piston and then all of a sudden you started to have these turbine aircraft come in and uh what the transition was like to those oh it was it was it was a gift from heaven um (laughs) we had uh the piston airplanes uh being very, each one is, and you know this. This is a mallard. Uh, each one is different. Each one has its own personality. Each one is. We had one called the Twisted Sister. We had one. Uh, it was all different names, and they all had their own personalities. Uh, one, some were heavy. Some flew crooked, like the Twisted Sister. Um, they had their own idiosyncrasies, uh, in which you got to know, and you, you never knew the, the aircraft you were going to get until you drew one. Uh, until you're there and you drew your aircraft and it's like oh my god i've got this such and such airplane and it's so heavy and i'm we're gonna have to we're gonna have to 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 the company front not done didn't well you had to reduce your fuel load that if it was heavier every airplane and uh to accommodate passengers and then you cut baggage so it stay within within the weight limitations and the cng cg and stuff uh some of the airplanes uh didn't have that problem they were lighter and they were more versatile and they flew right and that sort of thing but when lo and behold that pt6 came along and that mallard conversion from frakes came along it was it was just it was a revelation it was like all of a sudden we had all kinds of power i took off once in in paradise island and had a full load of 17 passengers and I forget what the number, the gross weight numbers, but the airplane was absolutely packed full of bags. We were within weight limitations, of course, and had probably a little bit, uh, a little heavy fuel uh, because there was weather and uh, took off. And uh, we went on the step and the rules were, the regulations were you, you taxi through the bridge and then you you, you nailed it and, and, and took off. Um and uh, 
I got off a little early one day and, and um, was, was, wasn't quite, I was past the bridge, but I was airborne as I got past the bridge and had an engine on a feather on me. Oh. And um, it, uh, of course, it, it feathered that engine. And, uh, and this airplane still, it still, with that, all that load, still climbed out on a hot day at 1,000 feet a minute. Um, <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Um, the piston mallard, on the other hand, there would have been a problem. Obviously, um, it was uh, it was just it was it was a, an amazing, wonderful, wonderful thing. It it's just a, it was an enlightenment to have that have that PT six come along. Was the Frakes conversion designed for you guys in particular, or because I noticed that you know it wasn't really until nineteen eighty five when you actually started getting more and more of these turbine mallards uh, but the frakes conversion happened in the 70s so were they trying to target you guys being a big operator of the mallard or was that was completely separate i don't know i have no 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 idea on that uh daniel i all i knew was when i got there in 1980 i think uh not soon after then or not soon after then uh, november 2974 came along and it had the 27 engines on it, the PT 627s on it. Um, yep. We eventually ended up having the 34s. Yep. And we were all just hankering to get on that airplane, you know, <laughs> and and fly it because it was a, it was a it was a PT six after all, and it was a wonderful thing. Because all the senior guys got it, uh, but that was kind of how it, I don't. So I don't know the answer to your question. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. So was there a you point know. where all of the mallards that you guys had turned into? turbine mallards or was there a mix still there for a while no actually the um i don't know exactly when the time happened but eventually they replaced them all um with with the, with the turbines and actually i flew the one of the last last gooses that came up from antilles and, and i'm not sure if they were going to use this particular airplane or not but uh i don't know exactly when the date when we com- completely became turbine uh, I just that's that goes way back, and I just I kind of kind of really can't recall. But uh, when we when we became when they all became turbines, and then it was it was a whole different ball game. It's the uh, we were not sorry to see the piston mallards go. Unfortunately, we were a wonderful airplane, but this new Frakes conversion was uh, was uh, some, something else. And and I guess people look back at these days, and they think that the. The piston mallard is really the the old stalwart now, and you know the turbine conversion. You know, it's it's not that true legend of the mallard, is it really? Because it's you know been updated. But as an operator, it's just we all know why the PD six is such an amazing engine and why it works so well on this on this aircraft because it's so reliable. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and one of the great things about the the turbine upgrade is that it still looks so good. I reckon, and I personally think that the turbine actually looks a little bit better, being a little bit sleeker, and it matches the curves a bit more of the Mallard, but that's just my opinion. With the turbine comes some other issues in a way. Um, one that we have an issue with is, is water ingestion into the engine. Um, did you guys have to deal with that a fair bit, You know, going into some of those spots where the, the water was a bit rough and sucking in a bit of water into the... Uh, intake there and, and potentially over-temping or, or having issues with power? Yeah, all was all, absolutely. That was, that was the number one thing. And, and uh, uh, of course, the, the aircraft got a 
uh, engines got water washed every evening. But depending on the pilot, we, we really hesitated. I hesitated to use too much reverse. If I wanted to use reverse, stop there, slow the airplane down, touch down, dump, dump the flaps, and pop on a little reverse to get the airplane stopped if I needed to get it stopped. But I, I would, let it, would let it come out uh, of reverse while the airplane settled into the water and where that chance of, of spray would come over the nose and then be ingested in the engine. You did whatever you could to, uh, to keep that from happening. Uh, they call it, they had an inertial separator. You have an inertial separator on that airplane, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, just, yeah. And that, that was, we turned that up to activate that thing. But, um, yeah, we just do whatever you could do because we, our days were long. We, we flew six legs, you know, um, you had an airplane that you had to get you out to the end of the day and, and you just, it's hard on the engine. It's starting and shutting down a lot, and um, always kept an eye on ITT. If it's if if you had a if you had a lot of water ingested by the end of the day, you know you just really kept a kept a close eye on that kind of thing because it it was it was such a significant. And we talked about water conditions earlier too. Um, if you're in rough conditions uh, and you had water all over the airplane coming over the bow and to you know, there were no, we didn't have any windshield wipers back in the day. There's no such thing. I mean, it was, they were, they were there, but, uh, uh, water ingestion was, was, was pretty important with, with those engines. You had, you had to make them, make them last to the end of the day. Now in the long run, that was a real consideration for, for the company because they were, they were not getting the, the, the TBOs out of those engines that they should have because, because of that, that saltwater environment, um, yeah, really difficult, difficult environment. What were they doing? Were they having a, a deal with Pratt and Whitney at the time to to try and organise, you know, a, a better, you know, change of engine more often or something like that? You know, I don't know. Um, we felt like that. Uh, no, there was no deal with Pratt and Whitney. Um, it was. A, I think that was a Frakes consideration as far as the the nacelle uh, design, as far as the intake. I think probably. It, it, at least in my opinion, was would have the intake on top of the engine uh, versus on the bottom because you get you know you get so much spray coming off the nose uh, on landing and takeoff uh, that water ingestion was a was a real consideration. Um, but I, I have I don't have any idea if there's any 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 kind of anything going on with with Pratt and Whitney or not with that. It's it's interesting you say that because you know. Our three mallards that we have here are the three different unique uh, mallards compared to the Frakes version, but we still kept the the intake uh, down low versus the, the the Frakes. So I know that the um, the actual intake on ours is I think a little bit higher, and and it's not. I'm just trying to find it here as well. I think you guys had something a bit lower as well, maybe the the oil cooler intake or something that's quite. Uh, pronounced below the air intake but um yeah i wonder if that was the thing that you know even when we tried to do our turbine conversion here and we looked at because we have we have changed a fair bit of the nacelle there uh, especially rearwards and i wonder if they looked at that and just thought it, it wasn't possible to have them on top or something i'm not sure um, i have to consider this is this is back in 19 whenever they did the conversion yeah, way 70s, back yeah. and, and so sure so i mean you know the uh technology we have today i mean i was just looking at your aircraft and the the whole 
aft nacelle con configuration back by the by the, the trailing edge of the wing is just all really different and just different things that you can that that I was so used to being around that particular Frakes Mallard that uh, just looking at yours is there are certain things that just jump out. It's like yeah. that is so different, so more modern looking that would have certainly worked back in the day had they had you know that technology. I don't I don't know. Yeah, well I, I'll touch on that for a second there, mate, because I've, I heard an interesting story about the. Uh, flight testing program about um, when we were looking at designing our version of the Mallard, the AT as we call it. We obviously had one Frakes Mallard that we were using as the main um, test aircraft to kind of get some figures off and whatnot. And they actually found that the airflow approaching the stall in between the two um, engine nacelles on top of the fuselage would actually flow forwards, which was really interesting uh they had you know all those tape and string i guess and yeah they were seeing that the airflow created from the the, the frakes nacelles was actually causing some sort of you know turbulent conditions on top that would cause the the airflow to go back forwards which is uh quite huh. interesting so up over the, yeah over, over the top of the center section and dry bay area yeah exactly the top yep. of the wow um so that's one of the main reasons why we have the nacelles that we do today is um to ensure that kind of approaching the stall all the airflow continues to to travel in the direction it should um <laughs> back mm -hmm. rearward um so that's yeah that's one of the main reasons but because you know there's actually a lot of room in those those bays but we don't actually use them for anything um one of the great things that is is for is that on the left one we have a handle there so when the boat comes up and docks to the mallard people up the front of the boat can actually hold on before the boat goes too far under the wing um mm. so that, that's a, a great advantage but there are, you know as mentioned there's a lot of small little intricacies about our at mallard versus the frakes i kind of look at it as a it was a personalization of the company who used them or they knew what they wanted to use them for and they had the opportunity to change the aircraft so a lot of the changes are specifically company based i guess to suit their sure uh, yeah one thing that stayed the same though is that is that is that amazing PT six conversion. I mean they they when they did that they did it right. Yeah, that's right. And the the dash thirty four is what we have as well. And yeah, certainly a lot of power. And um, you know we have to now conform with the uh, requirements to have single engine performance after an engine failure. So uh, which is one of those great things. You probably would have had that back in the day as well when you when you started in the in the turbine model as well the fact that you can have that engine failure like you just mentioned an engine auto feathers on you after takeoff and you can still be guaranteed terrain clearance um not not a huge deal generally off the water because uh it depends on where you are um but no it depends on where you are yeah, yeah sure. um but you know i imagine the bahamas there's not a lot of terrain to hit <laughs> anywhere um, uh, well, I mean, if there's a boat in front of you, you well, got to get away from you know, yeah. or something like that. Exactly. I mean, yeah. It's still consideration no matter where you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, you spoke about it before as well there. You touched on it, the, the Grumman Albatross, mate. Tell us a little bit about how that was introduced to um, Chalks back in the day. Well, they brought these airplanes. The uh, um, program was ongoing when I, was, when I started uh, – so you have this conversion happening, which I don't know a heck of a lot. I know it was a, a spar conversion uh, to strengthen the uh, uh, the wing spar on it, and that, that it, they put a titanium wing spar on it. And I, I don't know a heck of a lot about it, other than the fact that the the aircraft 
sort of appeared. We were flying the uh, the turbines a lot, and I was had a, of course, I had a had a life and a family by that time, and so I did know a lot about the airplane and what it was how, how it got there, other than the anticipation of. You know, I'm senior captain now, and and I'm gonna have to check out this airplane, and I better get cracking on the on the books and make sure that uh, I get this type rating. So to answer your question, really, I don't know a whole heck of a lot of history about yeah. uh, about how it got there, other than when it showed up. Was it a bit um, demoralizing in a way to see another piston show up uh, after you kind of had no, that success of the? No, this is oh no, this is a whole new ballgame. This is. This is an airplane that had 28 passengers. We had one corporate airplane that had 30 passengers, and it was huge. And it was, it had a radar, which was, uh, it was just, <laughs> there's another gift from heaven. Yeah. You know, it was a black and white Bendix that that was positioned on the fold down between the pilot seats. And, and uh, that was a revelation right there. It had a flight attendant. And, and the right airplane had a, uh, they could put an air conditioning duct in this and keep keep it air conditioned. Of course, they didn't have air conditioning um, at the time, I think. But it was no, there was no. It was just a whole new, brand new. It was like it was like transitioning into the turbine. It, it wasn't the same thing, but it wasn't a matter of uh, being a, a piston aircraft at all. It was just a big, heavy whopper of an airplane that was going to be interesting to fly and. Um, well, that, we 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 have we need to have another three hours to talk about that one for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, well yeah, it's, it must be must have been incredible. I mean, all pilots love a bit of a change in some way, don't they? I mean, you, you would have been flying the Mallard there for a fair while there, and obviously loving it. But you would have been ready to to try your hand at something new, especially a f- different kind of Grumman flying boat. Were you using the Albatross to do exactly the same um, type of work as the Mallard, or? You know, tell us a little bit about the the work it was doing. Same thing, same, just running a schedule. Uh, one of the reasons we did the ramp in Miami when we had to reposition the airplanes over to uh, the land base to get the ramp fixed in Miami was to accommodate the Albatross because it, we needed a better ramp. We needed one wider. Um, did the same thing in Bimini uh, because we were operating just to begin to operate the Albatross and in, in the Bimini, Nassau as well. Uh, it was basically the same same operator. Just we just we ran a schedule with it. The only difference was we had one corporate airplane that the that that the company used uh, to move VIP folks back and forth to Paradise Island because we were owned by the casino back in those days. And um, but other than that, it was just it was just another part of the seaplane operation. Uh, the only difference was it was an albatross and it would fly fly a few more folks. Um, and it was it had a lot of the same characteristics that the that the piston mallard had because it didn't have uh didn't have a huge amount of, of power that the turbines provided um the uh 1820 right engines that it had on it um uh when that airplane was loaded it was a hot day then we were back in the old mallard piston mallard days it was it was heavy and it was it had all the long takeoffs and and um and then the engines on that, uh, we were, the thing is, because I'm correct, man, is developing 1,475 horsepower out of each engine, but each engine has nine cylinders. Uh, and that's a lot to ask of a big old heavy airplane and hot day and, and um, big loads. And, and uh, so there were, there were problems with uh, blown cylinders and, you know, piston jugs. And it had a very interesting, uh, uh, propeller system on it, IOC 
system not that uh, was an oil driven uh, propeller pitch system this was problematic and it was just brought a whole new realm of uh, of different airplanes to the to the uh, some of us were were sort of at that point after flying this airplane for for a while until we got the bugs out some of us were kind of wishing we would we would sort of still be on the on the turbine mallard okay so were you kind of converted over and you stayed on the albatross at that stage in your career or were you kind of flying both? oh yeah yeah once you made the hop that was it you were yeah. uh unless you were a chief pilot where you had a you had to cover somebody and you had to go back on the other airplane no once you were we were once you were in a in that particular type aircraft that was it you were you were there at least in my case yeah so did you finish your career there? I don't want to talk too much about the end of your career because I'm, I'm loving it so much. Um, but did you, did you end up finishing your career on the Albatross or um, did you kind of go back to the Mallard at some stage? Nope, never did. Never never, never went back to the Mallard. Um, uh, stayed with the Albatross until the company evolved um, and uh, was sold and uh, they put the uh, decided to put an airstrip on Paradise Island and a lot of things were happening. The uh, Paradise Island was being sold. Um, uh, they went put the Sarah Strip on Paradise Island, so the Dash Seven made its appearance, and we sort of transitioned out of the Albatross into the Dash Seven, and that's when I left the seaplanes and um, and I flew the Dash Seven for oh, how many, however many years that was on that on that airstrip, and uh, then I left in uh, July '98. When you look back at you know when you're flying the Dash Seven, there were you looking back at the the seaplanes there and and wanting to kind of get your hand back in it again or was progression and and you know flying a new aircraft i imagine that the dash seven that you know four engine turboprop um not having to deal with some of the the issues of being on the water and you know a bit more of a comfort thing maybe um were you kind of happy in that airplane or were you always looking back and going oh i want to get back in that mallard or that albatross no, pretty happy with pressurization. Pretty happy with air conditioning. Pretty happy with flight <laughs> yeah. attendant. Pretty happy coffee with uh, ordering the, ordering a, ordering a coffee or a diet coke from the back and having it brought up. Uh, yeah, we didn't have to deal with any of the things that tied or bad bad weather conditions or, you know, we had a color radar and it was a real airplane and you know and so uh, there was not much nostalgic look back at at the seaplanes. In fact, there was a little <laughs> bit like one of those things like. Wow, this is a really bad day. Bad day of weather, uh, and I sure am glad I'm flying this airplane here versus those poor guys down there flying those um, uh, those turbines. Uh, and by that by that time, the albatrosses were gone, and they were back flying the uh, flying the, the the turbine mallards again. Okay. So, but still, yeah, I had I was, there was some still nostalgic. But I flew that Daniel. I flew that airplane for such a long time. I yeah, started yeah. in 1980 and and uh, finished with the albatross in just so many years and and. I mean, just in you know lousy weather conditions, and we had passenger issues, and you know, and unruly pass. And you talk about unruly passengers these days, and back in the day, most everybody was fine, but you know, there was all the things that go along with that kind of an operation. There's passengers, there's mechanics, there's maintenance, there's you, you just name it. Um, baggage overloading airplane or trying to overload airplanes, and yeah. you know. Uh, it just goes on and on. Yeah. Uh, the, the the Dash Seven brought in a whole different realm, and it was just kind of take a deep breath and relax. You know, things are things are beginning to change here. Mate, just don't forget there for a second. We are a seaplane show, okay? We want to make sure that seaplanes remain the 
the most popular and uh, you know best way of aviation. Not 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 airline. Oh, pilots. totally. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I I still <laughs> look back and uh, I'm in Michigan now, and uh, in fact, there's a. Uh, uh, last year, a year before, there's a there's a Kalamazoo Air Museum uh, called the Air Zoo, and they have an absolute pristine Grumman Mallard there, Piston Mallard there. Um, it's in that museum, and I went specifically just to look at that airplane. And, and uh, no, no, that that will never go for me yeah. uh, in the importance of it. Um, uh, no, it's, it was a very special special time. But I but you have to understand too that I. would been been in the airplane and, and done all these things for so many years oh, in that absolutely. particular airplane, you know. So it was kind of one of those things where it was time to move on. Yeah, you know? like I said, mate, pilots have this thing that they they can't seem to sit in the same airplane for for very long. We always kind of want to move on and try something bigger, better, or you know, try something different. You know, um, it's just one of yep. the things with pilots. I think um, you mentioned there the albatross not really lasting that long. Do you, can you give us a bit of an insight as to why? the albatross kind of was phased out or, or didn't really work like they kind of thought it would? I'm not terribly sure about that. Uh, um, I, I really don't know how to answer that question, honestly. Um, the Dash 7 came on, kind of came along and, and I just don't, I can't, I really can't recall yeah. uh, what I know. I know I'm sure that, oh, probably there were maintenance issues and I, I just, I just really couldn't give you a straight answer on yeah. that one. No, fair enough. What were some of the best memories you had about flying the, the flying boats there at Chalks? Have you got some stories there that you know just stand out in the memory bank as that was a, a great day or a memorable flight or you know were you involved in any of those little little film shoots? I know that it was in George Michael's uh, Careless Whisper video music video and it was in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I was there. Was that was I that was you? On that. I wasn't. No, that wasn't me. That was uh, it was another pilot. But I stood there and watched that whole thing. And then, um, and then we had the the Christo art exhibit where they did the, what they they wrapped the islands, uh, the Bay Islands just off Miami that go up and down the intercoastal. There's spoil islands up and down the intercoastal waterway that this artist named Christo back in probably eighty two or eighty three took pink wrap and wrapped each one of these in, run of these islands and. Uh, well, I mean, he probably did ten or twelve of them, and we were doing uh, we were doing charters just to just the sightseeing charters around those. Uh, that was pretty interesting. But the um, um, oh, just the weather and scud running in the days, and and uh, we got the reputation if you know if chalks ain't flying today, then we ain't going kind of thing. <laughs> um, we were we were it were common common um, to be down at you know if you had to get home be down at you know a thousand feet and uh kind of working your way around rain showers and and that low uh working off an of ndb on bimini or nassau because we were too low for the vor it was a lot of dead reckoning and uh, a lot of water spouts and uh, it was real flying uh and that you know they were the they were the accidents i never banged one up i i caught a float one time trying to get into uh into Miami, I, I came a little too close to one of the one of the fuel barge tugboats and uh, got it in his wake, and it pushed the airplane sideways. And I, I I caught one of the one of the one of the rocks next to the ramp with the with the float and put a little ding in it. But that was pretty much it. One of the other things was hard landings. Um, of course, it's got a, the piston mallard's got a fabric tail on it as well as the turbine does. But if you got into a hard landing, that you know the rooster tail off the back of the airplane would bounce up and 
bust the fabric and uh and there were those days and um it was weather and i had a situation we took uh we used to do these oil charters down on the backside of Andros Island, which is the largest island in the Bahamas. And uh, we were chartered by oil companies to, to, to take these geologists out. Here's an interesting dynamic. Uh, you were taking these 40-year-old airplanes, piston mallards, putting 12 people in it, geologists, and flying down to a very remote part of uh, the backside of the west side of Andros Island in the middle of nowhere. And... and um, Throwing out the anchor and letting these guys out at low tide, and they go out. They would, and they, what they would do is they would collect sand samples, okay, basically sandbags, and um, to to bring back to Miami to study. Well, guess what? Sandbags. That's weight. Okay. So now we're sitting at anchor on an airplane, and some of us had a bilge pump, others didn't. Depend on who had took the time before the before the flight to come out and hook up a bilge pump would sit there for two hours or so. And meanwhile, these airplanes, oh, no, they never leaked. No, no, they never leaked, but they leaked. So after two hours or so, these geologists would come back because it was supposed to be indicative of oil-producing area, and they were studying this, and they filled these sandbags. These guys, All these guys would show up with sandbags and an airplane half full of water, and you were 125 miles away from uh, any, any kind of maintenance. Um, so... Those are the days that made it interesting. I um, actually had a co-pilot once at, uh, on one of the, we call those oil charters that was actually putting out a, uh, putting out anchor. I think it was a quarter inch size of nylon rope. And, uh, for a guy was, had not much experience with, with, with flying boats or boats anyhow. And it was blowing that day, 10, 15 knots and, and, uh, airplane was, or swung into the wind with the anchor out. He was playing the rope out, playing the line out. And there was a big knot of line that got up around his hand and, and, and caught him and caught his, his lower three fingers. And, Ooh. and he's able to, able to get it tied off, but we couldn't get the airplane loose from the, from the anchor. So I got up and got his hand out of it, got his fingers out of it and got him in the back of the airplane and then had to jump overboard, swim, swim around, and uh, and cut the anchor lines, went back to the airplane and fly it back to Miami. With I left the geologist there. There was another there was another mallard there, and so they had to make two flights to NASA all that afternoon. But I was able to get this guy back, um, this co-pilot, nice guy, still know him, and uh, had one of his fingers amputated from that. But mm -hmm. just those crazy days and um, crazy things like uh, getting to Bimini at the last flight of the day and trying to get back home and getting the airplane loaded up and trying to fire up one of the engines and start the right engine and the left wouldn't want to start because it was a bad starter. So I deplane de everybody is getting late in the day and, um, we had a rope start the airplane. So you say, take that same, same anchor rope and take a couple of loops around the hub, drape, drape the rest of the anchor line over to the good engine, take a couple of loops around the good engine from the bad <laughs> engine, get it ready to start, hit the ignition, Crank the good engine, and that would pull start the left engine, get that started. And it would, of course, it was just a couple of loops on that engine. All you needed was a blade on the hot engine, and she'd fire right up and uh, load them back up and blast off. I hope you the know, anchor wasn't connected things. during that. No, no, no. <laughs> well, we just use the anchor rope as a pull. It's like like a pull start on a mower yeah, machine. Yeah, the same, yeah. same, totally the same principle. Yeah. 
In fact, old my old, my old Jimmy Buffett interviewed me on that one, and and he used it in one of his books. And uh, but that was a common thing that was done. In fact, there's a couple of photographs somewhere where they had eight or ten guys standing out on the ramp with a with a loop a loop or two of the anchor line wrapped around the hub trying to get the engine started. Um, but I just used the other engine from the other side, draped it across the top, and pull started it just like a mowing machine. She fired up and loaded up and took off. How <laughs> good's that? <laughs> Oh, that's that's great, and that that was that was a good thing about the um, the turbine, wasn't it? Like, um, never had any issues with starting turbines. Well, unless you had a dead battery cart, well, or the batteries were low on the airplane, or uh, if somebody happened to leave something on and and you you know you killed a battery, well, uh, that's an issue. Yeah, if, <laughs> if the battery cart was low and you couldn't spin the engine high enough, then you risk a hot start. Yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was that that turbine engine was great, but it wasn't foolproof. That's for sure. No. You had to have, you know, and 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 to have a an engine an engine powered APU was a was a was a no gamer because they're in the Bahamas. I mean, we just had a we just had a little twelve volt twenty four volt battery cart uh, in Miami. We had a we had a real gas fired APU that would spin the engine like nobody's business. But when you got way out there. You know, those are those are all considerations. You mentioned there before, you know, some small little incidents. Um, obviously, that kind of leads into one of the biggest topics, I guess, with with chalks. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, was the the accident that happened in two thousand and five. Um, obviously, you weren't around then, but tell us what it was like for you personally. You had such a, a big connection with chalks. Um, you know what was it like hearing that one of their aircraft had gone down and 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 there had been a a death in the company there. Well, it was heartbreaking. Um, I lost a, a, a good friend uh, a few years before uh, another deal. Uh, but that particular one, I just felt I just it was just just heartbreaking and horrible, and I just felt bad for for everybody, uh, obviously and. You know the the demise of the airplane really or the airline didn't didn't really come into play for me because I was so so heartbroken by by the tragedy of it all um, and sort of really was interested to see sort of what happened. Um, but other than that, um, I, I, I guess in, in hindsight, I, thinking at the time, it probably would not have been. Uh, a, a very good omen for the future of the airline having something like that happen, but it really did make a point, make matter to me at, at that point. Um, it was just, I was just so sad because the people in that were involved, and especially all those folks, because uh, it was a bit, it was a flight one on one to Bimini, and it, they're absolutely lovely people, and it's it's a it's a wonderful community, and. I was there for so many years and so many are like friends and family and it was just, and you'll never get over something like that. And that the, the humanity part of it is, is, was paramount for me. It still is. Um, and what happened to the airline didn't, uh, after that didn't, didn't seem like, didn't seem very important to me at the time. No, exactly. And, and, but yeah, it must have been it must be really hard having that connection to the airline and and the aircraft and and then like you said, the locals, the people who fly the, that aircraft every day, day in day out, um, that would have been using this scheduled service and 
you know, it's such a shame. Um, what uh, I I know as well that you mate, you you've you've talked about here. You find the goose, the, the mallard, and the albatross. I'm pretty sure I heard you say in uh, in our chats previously that you've flown also the widgeon, which makes you kind of flying all the the four main twin engine Grumman flying boats. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about your experiences flying the widgeon. Well, that's what I got my type in. Okay. Um, uh, actually, the, the not the type, but the rating, the yeah. cheap, multi multi rating. Um, fellow name, uh, I don't know if I should use names or not, but it was an operation in uh, in uh, Opelika, Florida, which is uh, the same same little airport we talked about that I flew uh, when we were doing the ramp, uh, our first land based operator operation. But uh, Bob uh, uh, had his little operation there, and he was one of the only ones that was. Uh, giving multi Jack Browns back in the day didn't I don't think they gave a multi back in the day that was just strictly strictly single engine so and this was in a uh, of course a a, 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 a widget with a Ranger inverted Ranger engines on it and uh, there there was no propeller control on it the propellers were wired to, were, were safety wired to the full pitch <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> And so what you, it was basically just uh, what you had was what you got. And we would take off and um, fly over to what's called Stiltsville or some convenient place in the uh, uh, intercoastal waterway or Miami River and, and, uh, and do, our, do, do what we had to do to, to, to pass a check ride. And, uh, and then there was a specific examiner who happened to be also a chalks examiner. And uh, he was the one that gave me the rating, and then, uh, uh, and then he was the one that checked me out in the, uh, in, the in the piston mallard. But uh, by the way, we we did all most of our training for chalks uh, in the mallard down at a place called below Kibis Cane called Stiltsville, and it's still down there. And it's just uh, uh, there are a bunch of houses out there on stilts, and uh, these long, uh, long dredged out. Uh, uh, stretches of open water that you could just do do all your training. It was pretty interesting. Is it something that you look back on now, um, and and back on your career, that you flew all those, you know, Grumman flying boats? Yeah, I guess so. The only one I never flew was Grumman Duck. Yeah. Um, but I felt like Daniel back in the day. Uh, I felt like it was pretty important. Uh, endeavor, but the operation was pretty important. So I started collecting things. I started picking up baggage tags. I've got probably one of the biggest collections of chalks memorabilia. Oh wow! Uh, around, I've got uh, oh, I've got terminal posters. I got an old, I've got a mallard blade. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, all, all all kinds of this and that that I have decorated my house with. But uh, uh, my, in fact, my mallard blade was one that they had taken off um, a piston mallard and. Um, it had back in the day because of, because on takeoff you know water going supersonic that would it would it would it would pit the uh, yeah. the leading edge yep. of, the, of the of the blade and and uh, they between between days of uh, maintenance overnight they bring a bring a file out and file that uh, file that that prop down and uh, just to get to stop that pitting and that was one of the things on pre-fights y'all would look around and walk and see what kind of blade what kind of shape the blades were in and if, if the blades blades were kind of tired and, fi- and and kind of filed down, then you knew 
Well, this airplane ain't gonna quite perform like it's supposed uh-huh. to perform because it's, you know it's not making all that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you you've got a blade that's got half a tip missing, do you? Not tip, no, just the leading edge. It just erodes away. Yeah. And um, just just to keep that pitting from becoming worse, uh, they take a file and, yeah, and yeah. file that leading edge down. And so that's uh, one of the blades that I have in my in my <laughs> little collection. There is is. Uh, it's, you can see when they they took a rasp and rasp that that that, uh, that out of there. Yeah, that'd be uh, interesting to see your collection, mate, of uh, of chalks merchandise that you have. Um, that'd be a, a prized collection, I reckon, these days. Well, it's it's uh, it was fun to hang on to, and it's um, it's it brings back a lot of memories, and and uh, I got all kinds of junk, all, you know. Uh, uh, I got a like I said, I have an old terminal poster for uh, at the at the uh, I think that at the bottom of the at the bottom of the poster is it's uh, seaplanes. S E A planes are seaplanes. S E E planes. In other words, we flew low enough. Or that was in quotes. And uh, and on the on this poster was uh, I think it was this one. Is in quotes. It also said uh, and because we were on Watson Island, uh, which was probably thirty minutes away from the international Miami International Airport. And I think in quotes at the bottom of this page, it said, and I bet you could even talk us into giving you a ride to Miami International Airport. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, that, was one of the, that was one of the come-ons, you know. That's awesome. I, one thing I've picked up on, mate, talking through your career is it doesn't sound like you flew any float planes. It's all flying boats. Did you ever do much float plane flying? No, never. Never been in one. <laughs> um no, no, I got my multi-engine rating, and that was it. First, first amphibian, the first seaplane I stepped in was a goose, and that was it. Uh, in fact, I just went through. My son is a. Uh, we ride, uh, we ride motorcycles, the endurance kind of KTM type motorcycles, and uh, we do these long, long rides. And we just got back and uh, went, made a loop through Florida, and went by Jack Browns and uh, looking at the airplanes, and they've got a mall on floats and he's all interested. He's got his, you know, about, about to get his private license. And, um, uh, but no, never have. That'd be fun. That'd be a great fun thing to do for, for, for a weekend is, uh, is good. That's, that's a lot of folks do that to go down and, and, uh, in, in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and bare feet and get your, get your single engine rating. Yeah. yeah that'd be fun. I never thought I'd be talking to uh, someone who had 18 years experience at chalks and being like, Trust me, mate. Flow plane flying is really fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like um, my wife's a helicopter pilot, uh, or she she was flying choppers a few years back, and she was doing her instructor rating, and she got onto this um, this school basically, and there was this really experienced helicopter instructor there, or, or pilot who flew the one hundred nines out to the oil rigs IFR at night and all that kind of stuff. He was. Uh, he started in the military in Australia and and was started basically on Hueys and all the kind of stuff they fly in the military. Anyway, then his career progressed and he's now in search and rescue and everything. Been flying choppers for twenty odd years and anyway, um, uh, Jen was flying the little R twenty two helicopter and uh, yeah. was flying it up the Sundays and Richard said, "Well, can I come and and join you? I've never flown a twenty two before." And Jen's like, "Oh, I'll give you your endorsement. You know, it's only." Because every helicopter is an endorsement. I think it might have changed just recently here. But um, so she's like, "Oh, I'll give you an endorsement if if you like." And 
she said, oh, it's, I think it's only three hours. And he goes, no, nah, I'm pretty sure it's five because this is my first piston helicopter I've ever flown. And she's just uh, like, wow, what? You know, like that's where everyone starts. And you, you've just been a turbine helicopter pilot your whole life. It's just like, <laughs> that sounds like you, mate. You need to go back and uh, fly a cub or something. Yeah, it'd be fun. Uh, I'd, I'd love to do it. In fact, a fair amount of with the, with the, with the well, back back in the day, yeah, flying a cub around was, uh, was is always, anything open cockpit's fun. Yeah. Um, but uh, to do it uh, with a pair of floats underneath you would be a heck of a lot of fun. Yep, go down to Jack Brown, see Abby Kellett, who's a big part of the Seaplane Pilot Association team, and she'll uh, she'll sort you out, mate. Um, now we're getting to the end of the uh, the interview, mate, and I like to finish my interview with the splash and dash questionnaire, uh, just like the land plane touch and go, the seaplane splash and dash. We're going to touch on a few seaplane related questions, just general questions. Um, sure. First of all, what? I really don't know the answer. Most most guests here, I I kind of know what they're going to say for this, but I, I'm guessing I know which one. But what was your favorite seaplane that you've ever flown? I think I think uh, the Goose was the most interesting one and the most challenging one of of all of them because it was tailwheel, and uh, I, I would probably say that one. But then there's a, there's a turbine mallard too, which was. Uh, which was a lot of fun, but I think probably the goose was the, was the most uh, most classic and the most uh, original and, and the most challenging one. Did you ever do any command flying in the goose? Or was it just all, all co-pilot stuff? All co-pilot stuff, yeah. but we we swapped legs. Yeah, as, and uh, you cut my teeth on it. It's great air, great little aircraft for sure. Yeah. And I think she's still flying around. I'm not sure. Yeah, wow. Tell us about where the best place to actually land. One of your seaplanes, one of the one of the chalk seaplanes, or any any place that you've gone into that stands out as that was the absolute highlight for for doing a water landing or a water takeoff. I think probably Bimini was interesting. Um, we landed in Cat Key as well, and on, on rough days we would uh, we would drop drop the uh, the airplane into the, into the turning base in the marina there and get it and try and get it stopped before we got out in the open open water. But just those days where where the uh, where the water was clear and uh, and not much not much wind and just uh, sun was coming up or whatever it's just a, this a beautiful days um, you know those days it just depends yeah and and that's the thing as I mentioned before earlier in the podcast like that's the great thing about seaplanes every water landing's different and you can go to a spot that's quite challenging on really windy days or something but can be absolutely the easiest or best place to land a seaplane in in those beautiful blue sky calm windows so all these spots vary i guess totally varies and and like the next landing could be you know something horrendous uh there were times when the sun was sun was going down and we had to get get in and there was weather and you know just just the that was one of the things you had to think on your feet because every every minute uh, every day something was going to something was going to change and it you just couldn't you couldn't expect the expected you said sun going down there nothing worse than sun going down all salt you know crusted salt all over the windshield uh, it's not easy to see out of those airplanes sometimes is it no it really isn't. and back in the day when rainx first came out uh, we were using a lot of rainx on the windshield of course that beat the water off but um 
uh, yeah, and there were no windshield wipers back in the day, and and yeah, I mean, at the end of a long day, the sun's going down, and there was weather, and you know, you 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 earn your living, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you're probably the, the aircraft that you've flown, probably the envy of most people, especially most listeners. Um, what's what's a dream seaplane that you haven't flown that you'd love to kind of get into? I'd like to fly. I'd like to give the Martin Mars a go, just by virtue of it being what it is. But I think probably the Grumman Duck, I think that hull is very similar, if not exactly the same as a Grumman Goose. But I would like to, I would like to give the Grumman Duck a go, and at least uh, to be able to say that I've, I pretty much flew all the, all the Grumman products. But uh, really don't know. Good question. The Duck still flies down in Florida a bit, doesn't it, with um, Kermit's Fantasy of Flight? Is it still actually yeah, fine? Yeah, Kermit. Yeah, Kermit has uh, apparently has has a. We fact, my son and I just rode our bikes past there. It's right next to John, Jack Brown's, by the way. Oh. Um, and I'm not sure they're open because of uh, what's been going on with the pandemic and okay. not, and whatnot. But that's one of the one of the things I'd like at least like to go down and and, and look at and, uh, and and see that air that aircraft. Uh, but to to be able to fly it would be uh, would be a lot of fun. Yeah, that'd be pretty amazing. Did you have the dream seaplane job, or was there something out there that maybe could top flying at chalks uh no chalks was pretty much it I, I there was antilles airboats that was down in the virgin islands and and um i think they were not sure how much longer they lasted after uh uh i'm not exactly sure how long that lasted and by that time i was well underway with chalks but other than that no chalks was it um you know you, you hear about all the alaska alaska uh bush pilots and all that kind of thing and eh, we were just working for a living back then um and it just happened to be in something very unique yeah uh what about ideal seaplane to fly around the world in what would it be one of those four that you that you've uh, flown if i had to fly around the world it'd be an, it would be in a turbine mallard okay uh, just just because of the versatility and the power and and everything else, speed and everything else. Yeah, reliability um, of the of the reliability. Oh, no, reliability. Absolutely, that's 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 paramount. Yeah, about reliability. Yeah. What about if you just wanted to take one of those four out and just throw it around and and have a bit of fun on the weekend, say with your family or whatever? Which one would you choose? Oh, I think probably the piston mallard. Yep. Okay. It was just just a good all around airplane or. Uh, yeah, either that one. I mean, the the, the turbine mallard was is is interesting, but it it doesn't have that nostalgic edge that the other ones do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but the piston mallard has is more. It seemed like it was more of a challenge, and uh, uh, you kind of be had, had to be a little bit better on your game as far as uh, weight and uh, all the other things that were associated with flying with that flying that airplane. Yeah, awesome. power that kind of. Thing. Mate, finally, uh, have you got any advice for anyone who wants to get into the, the seaplane or f- not many flying boats around these days, but getting into the industry? Like, you know, anything that you learnt back in the day that could help someone out getting into seaplanes? Yeah, if you get a job, listen to the guy on the left seat. Don't <laughs> don't come knowing like you you know it all and because you don't, because ninety percent of it is is sitting in the right seat and. If you're lucky enough to do every other leg, and the and the guy on the left seat is is nice enough and willing to share and uh, share experiences, his experience and his advice, 
like Jim Cawthorn was for me, that would be the advice I'd get. Um, yeah, because those, yeah. we just just a, just a, a ticket in the pocket is nothing. Uh, it's it's just totally the experience yeah. uh, that you get uh, from that person in the left seat. Now, oh, awesome. Well, Arthur Campbell, it's been uh, an incredible chat, mate. I've really, really enjoyed this this conversation. Going back and and talking all about chalks and and your career, flying only flying boats. I think it's pretty pretty rare to hear that no one's ever flown a float plane with your experience. Um, but mate, I hope you've enjoyed it yourself, and uh, yeah, really want to thank you very much for taking the time to come on the step. Yes, it's been uh, interesting. Nice to. Uh... Nice to think about those old days. I wish I had another shot at it so I could kind of reminisce a little bit more. But uh, it's been a lot of fun, Daniel, and I really appreciate your efforts and, and look forward to hearing the podcast. Awesome, mate. Cheers. And that's the show for today, folks. Thanks so much to Arthur for all of the back and forth organizing this interview and for reminiscing on his incredible career. If you love that episode as much as me, folks, make sure you share it with your friends leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts or even come and join me on Patreon. Links are in the show notes. I am exhausted. I only did this interview two days ago and I've been working my butt off to get this out to you all. So I hope you all liked it. But until next time, everyone, thanks for coming on The Step.